BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Roundtable for July 31st, around 8.30 in the morning here in Washington, D.C., as you can surely tell, I'm not Bill Press. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui of The Wall Street Journal, filling in for Bill, who is on vacation. This has been a week dominated by awful numbers and tragic deaths, by disinformation on COVID-19, and around mail-in voting. Our economy contracted in the last quarter at an annual rate of 33%, the biggest drop in modern history. News claims for unemployment are up again, 1.4 million this week alone. And the United States passed another grim milestone, over 150,000 deaths from COVID-19, including former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain. But another issue that caught attention was that of civil rights pioneer, Congressman John Lewis. Three former U.S. presidents spoke at his funeral yesterday. In his eulogy, President Obama called out President Trump and the GOP, but not by name. And we are one week away from Joe Biden's VP pick. Will it matter? We'll find out. A lot to digest on our roundtable today, and I'm joined by Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow at Media Matters. Hi, Matt. Hey. Good to be with you. And Jason Dick, Deputy Editor of CQ Roll Call and host of the podcast Political Theater. Hi, Jason. Hello. Morning, everybody. Morning. And Jennifer Bendery, Senior Politics Reporter for HuffPost. Hi, Jen. Hello. Okay, let's get to it. Another week where the daily death toll soared in the United States and the number of Americans dead from COVID-19 approached the tragic milestone of 150,000. President Trump was back in the briefing room and after a brief maybe day or two where some people thought he might be taking it more seriously, he finally was wearing a mask, he seemed to be talking, taking it a little more seriously, here he is again painting a misleading picture of a viral surge that's raged across southern and western states and, as usual, complained about his own approval ratings, namely that the government's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has better approval ratings than he does. Um, Matt, let's start with you. Where do, where, where do we stand right now? I mean, this we've now passed month four. We're going into month five. Any sign that this is going to get any better based on where things stand in the White House today? I think where things stand right now is that months into this global pandemic, there still is no plan. Um, there is no broad federal effort to try to curtail the spread of a virus that's killed 150,000 Americans uh, that is still running rampant in, in states across the country. 
and so I think we're going to remain in the situation we're in now for quite some time, where you have outbreaks in particular areas uh, that get worse, that necessitate additional uh, shutdowns um, of uh, those uh, states and municipalities, and then things get a little bit better after that, and then there's an outbreak somewhere else, and we're just going to play whack-a-mole with this virus until hopefully there are better therapies or uh, a vaccine. But but as things stand now, there just there is no broad plan to stop things. We see the president uh, and the White House trying new communications tactics. Uh, we see, and this this leads to the discussion of the new tone every once in a while. But at the end of the day, you have to actually stop the virus. It doesn't matter how you talk about it if you aren't actually trying. Uh, to get case numbers down, and and the White House just isn't. Jen, you know, I don't know. I didn't expect us to be back here so soon, but uh, President Trump returned to this notion that hydroxychloroquine could be a cure, retweeting videos describing it as such, uh, suggesting also that Americans don't need to wear masks. How impactful has this? misinformation campaign been on the part of the president? What role do you think that plays also in the resurgence of the virus in some of these states across the country? Well, you can't underestimate the effect that what the president says to the country, you know, the effect that that's going to have on people's behaviors. Even if Trump says things that aren't true about different, you know, ways to deal with the coronavirus, like injecting bleach into yourself or shining a bright light inside your body to kill the coronavirus. I mean, this is all part of a broader problem, which is this Trump just doesn't, he's not taking it seriously. And so there can be all kinds of analyses around the edges of, oh, there's a change in tone for 24 hours and he's wearing a mask and, you know, he is getting better. He's not getting better. He's never gotten better. I mean, he's, He's being coerced into occasional sentences that say something that is based in science, but then it goes back to just chaos. And and to Matt's point, the real issue, regardless of you know when Trump says to try a certain drug that actually is dangerous for you or says things are better when they're not, the overarching problem is that there is misinformation all over the place and there is not enough money being invested in testing and contract in contact tracing and PPE and vaccines. I and mean, you can only talk so long until you're going to do something to change this. So he's not changing. And, and if, if there's anything that's changed, it's that you can see the quote unquote pivot by the president is that he's just focused more on his campaign and turning to things like racism to just get the attention off of the coronavirus and trying to scare people into wanting to support him in November. So this is all just blending into a giant mess of him not addressing this issue. And it's worth noting that nearly two thirds of Americans disapprove of President Trump's handling of three major challenges facing the country, including the coronavirus pandemic, as well as his handling of the nationwide arrest that stemmed from the killing of George Floyd by police and US-Russia relations. That's according to a new ABC News poll uh, out today. Jason, President Trump isn't going anywhere. There is an election in November. Uh, now he is floating the prospect of perhaps 
delaying that election. That was a, an idea that was swiftly shut down by Democratic and Republican leaders alike on Capitol Hill. First, I'm going to play a bit of sound. John Roberts asked Trump about his tweet, suggesting that the election might be delayed. Spoiler alert, he can't delay it. Here is Fox News' John Roberts. I was wondering, is the net effect of what you tweeted this morning and what you're talking about now to cast doubt on the results of the November 3rd election? Well, it's had an interesting impact. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be the impact it had. What people are now looking at is, am I right? But not me. Are all these stories right about the fact that these elections will be fraudulent? They'll be fixed. They'll be rigged. And everyone's looking at it. And a lot of people are saying, you know, that probably will happen. Jason, what is going on here? Um, well, fairly classic Trump. You know, I mean, like, we, we, you know, yesterday morning we were greeted with uh, the news, as you mentioned in the uh, overview at the top of the, of the podcast, that the American economy had uh, on an annualized basis contracted by a third, uh, which is the worst economic, you know, contraction in modern history, including the Great Depression and the, you know, the demobilization around World War II. And uh, the Great Recession looks like a, you know, just a amateur hour, you know, compared to that. And, you know, just amazingly, you know, within minutes, that tweet came out <laughs> of the Bureau of Economic Analyses, um, you know, it, you know, really dire economic news. And Trump has been leading up to this for a while. I mean, he has been, uh, you know, people like Bill Maher, you know, the comedian on HBO have, have been joking about this for years that he's not going anywhere. Um, and, you know, so it, it's it's part of a strategy that it changes the conversation from what is, you know, really just terrible news, like for, for everybody, not just for the president's reelection campaign, uh, but for anybody who wants to keep, say, paying their mortgage and so forth. Um, and then also it no matter what happens in November, he has already planted this seed of doubt. And as we've seen, I mean, like the even though we have like these huge disapproval ratings for him among the public, uh, there's he still has this loyal core of of people who support him, and they probably will no matter what. Even if he does, you know, magically accept the you know the the fraudulent results against him uh, in November. And so, I mean, it it really just works into what he does best, which is is really kind of mess with everybody, take hold of the narrative and and cast out on on anything bad that happens to him as just some sort of big conspiracy. You know, Matt, you track very closely uh, conservative media, particularly Fox News. And one of the ways in which Trump has been successful in floating conspiracy theories is by having the backing of his favorite network. Uh, how did this suggestion of his to delay the election or at a minimum to cast doubt on mail-in voting play out in conservative media? Uh, I mean, I think it's mixed. Uh, you're seeing some amount of pushback from folks like uh, the editors of National Review. Uh, Tucker Carlson offered a sort of tepid, uh, you know, this is, isn't a great idea, uh, last night on his show. Uh, but this morning on Fox and Friends, they're basically selling it as, as a genius move uh, to spur discussion of the issue, uh, as, you know, basically in the same way that the president was in the clip that, they, that we just played. I mean, I think we're, we're talking a lot of, about a lot of different issues right now, but we're really talking about the same issue, which is that Republicans made a bet that they could put uh, a bigot who doesn't know anything in the White House and surround him with other people, and they'd get their 
judges and they'd get their tax cuts and hopefully nothing bad would go would happen. Uh, and then what happened is there was a worldwide pandemic that's killed 150,000 Americans and a, there's, now there's an economic catastrophe and the president floating, moving the election. I mean, the bet has not worked out very well for us. Um, but but I think that's the sort of broad situation. And so what you're going to see from the right wing media is some people vaguely saying, well, maybe this wasn't a great idea, but generally uh, them finding their way uh, through to rally around him in the months to come. They're in too deep at this point. <laughs> and Jen, just taking a step back for a moment, if you are calling to delay the election, you are the sitting president of the United States, put aside even for a moment everything we just talked about, that you can't actually do that, and there is no reason to suggest that there is any fraudulent activity whatsoever with respect to mail-in voting. It is absolutely how people vote in every election, let alone in a pandemic, of course, where it would be unsafe to have long lines and crowds at polling centers. Putting all of that aside, this does not sound particularly confident on part on the part of the president. Would you agree if you felt you were in a pretty strong position going into November, I don't think you would call to delay the election, would you? You know, I'm taking a, an online class right now called Positive Discipline for Parenting. And... <laughs> One of the core tenets is this idea that a child's behavior is like the tip of an iceberg and that there's this massive piece of an iceberg underneath the water that you can't see the rest of. So the tip of the iceberg is the behavior, but the massive chunk that's underneath the water is actually what's driving it. And I think that's a good analogy for trying to make sense of the president because his tip of the iceberg is saying things like, we need to move the election and mail-in voting is fraud. And, um, you know, like the, the racist dog whistle he's been making about, um, you know, suburban communities and, and, and getting rid of low income housing in their communities, because that's what suburban people want. You take all these outlandish claims that he's making, those are all the tip of the iceberg. And if you look beneath the water, there's a huge, remaining piece of the iceberg that is what's driving it. And what's driving it is panic, fear, failure, incompetence, all the things that we already know from watching the way the president has responded to the pandemic and has responded to um, the civil unrest over racism around the country. So basically, to me, the, the point isn't to make sense of what's happening on the tip of the iceberg. The point is to look at what's beneath it and stop talking about what's on the top, because we all know what's on the top is just noise and distraction. What's underneath it is a refusal to admit failure and, and a real fear of losing, which is ultimately what Trump's least favorite thing in the world is, is being a loser. And I think what we're seeing is him just lashing out in all directions to to not end up looking like a loser. Well, absolutely a moment where I think a lot of Republicans are scratching their heads, um, wondering, of course, if this is just going to be the path between now and November. But, you know, we've seen that movie before and they don't seem to challenge him. That's a question we've asked them time and again. What do you think of the president's tweet on X? I suspect if we asked any one of them about the 
tweets about mail-in voting, they will either say much of the same, I don't read the tweets, or cast it aside as some kind of joke. It's not funny. <laughs> um, we have a lot more to talk about. I want to get into this issue of Trump and the suburbs that you alluded to, Jen. But let's take a quick break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable with Jen Bendery, Jason Dick, Matt Gertz, and me, Sabrina Siddiqui. Stay tuned. Today's podcast brought to you by the Iron Workers Union. Yes, those great men and women of the Iron Workers. Their slogan is, the sky's the limit. And boy, is it ever. Look at some of the great iconic buildings and structures in this country. The Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the St. Louis Arch, the new One World Trade Center, all topped off by the Iron Workers under the leadership of President Eric Dean. We salute the Iron Workers of America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable, I'm Sabrina Siddiqui of the Wall Street Journal, sitting in for Bill, and I'm joined by Jen Bendery of HuffPost, Jason Dick of CQ Roll Call, and Matt Gertz of Media Matters. Hi, guys. Um, Howdy. <laughs> hello. Matt, uh, over to you for a moment, because before the break, Jen alluded to uh, President Trump uh Sending a tweet informing the public, I am happy to inform all of the people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. You wrote about this. Uh, Tell us some more about what the president is trying to do here. Sure. Uh, So I I think the New York Times, which generally doesn't use such language, summed it up pretty well, saying that uh, these remarks were playing on, quote, racist fears to court, quote, white voters in the suburbs. Um, I I think it's difficult to uh, call that tweet a dog whistle because uh, it is quite loud, uh, the racism (laughs) embedded in that that language. Um, But this is uh, another case, I think, where it's very important in order to have the full understanding of what the president is doing to to have a sense of what the right-wing media is doing, because he is fully immersed in the sort of alternate reality uh, that they spin out. Uh, he spends a lot of time uh, watching Fox News and tweeting about what he sees often in real time. Uh, he takes advice from its hosts, and they really shape 
uh, his worldview. And, and this is this is one of those cases uh, where that has happened. He has been uh, tweeting and, and talking for the last month or so about this idea that uh, Joe Biden is going to abolish the suburbs, um, which uh, is insane. Uh, it's based on a sort of series of policies that Biden has supported which would try to uh, increase housing stock and uh, decrease uh, segregation in communities by leveraging various federal funds, but it, it would not abolish the suburbs uh, in any meaningful way. But that's language that uh, National Review used uh, late last month and that the president adopted almost immediately. It's something that uh, Tucker Carlson spoke about a lot on his uh, Fox News show uh, on July 9th, uh, devoting uh, part of his monologue to that idea. And a few days after that, uh, the president started giving speeches in which he was claiming that, uh, sure enough, Joe Biden was going to abolish the suburbs. Again, this is uh, untrue. It is uh, the, the language that he deploys to pursue it is quite racist. Um, and it, he's getting it directly from uh, Fox News and, and other people on, in the right wing media. No, this comes after President Trump announced that he would repeal and replace an Obama-era housing rule that was aimed at reducing racial discrimination. This is obviously not just about housing policy. As uh, Matt was noting, this is very much about Trump's bid to get reelected. Jason, you know, this is not new. Uh, the playbook that we saw from President Trump in 2016 was very much rooted in stoking racial division. Uh, it's kind of striking that after this nationwide reckoning on the issue of race and America's legacy with slavery, all of which came in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in late May, that the president is really leaning into these issues from a completely different vantage point than the majority of the country. What kind of resonance does this message have four years later? You could argue that he was somewhat successful in 2016. Did, I think many of us would disagree that the election was about economic anxiety. But, but four years later, where do we stand as a country? Do you think that this actually works? Um, I, I think it works for the people he wants to appeal to who uh, are, are not going anywhere. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, a frequent error that people in campaigns make is that they continue to run the last race that worked for them. And, and I agree that this is a very different election. Um, you know, my, uh, my family and I were watching baseball last night and then we were watching, uh, the opening of the NBA season and, you know, it, it it's different. You know, the NBA has, has, uh, um, has, has been sort of all in on, on racial justice. This is the most popular sport next to soccer on the planet. Uh, and it has the biggest stars, you know, with, with racial justice messages on their uh, uniforms that that kind of stuff was not happening uh, at the at the pop culture level certainly you know uh, in in 2016 and you know the so I think that the you know the president I um, I, I think that the president when he gets cornered uh, he he doubles down on the things that he feels the most comfortable doing and this is what he feels very comfortable doing I mean he had the on the housing thing you know I mean he has a, a long history of getting into trouble with the law on housing discrimination, including dating back to uh, you know his prosecution by uh, the Justice Department back in the '70s uh, for um, you know 
uh, racist policies in in uh, his housing projects here in the DC area. So I mean, th- this is this is the, where he feels comfortable, but it's not necessarily what I think the rest of the country uh, is 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 wanting to hear. At least the vast majority of it. Uh, if I'm a democratic strategist, I want to hear the president keep talking about this because this is the kind of stuff that makes people feel very uncomfortable. I mean, the the you know, newsflash: the the close-in suburbs of most major American cities uh, are are not just uh, swinging; they're kind of swung. And now we're fighting, you know, on on Republican and Democratic issues out in the in the exurbs, and even those are starting to go Democrats' way. You know. You know, one of the pioneers of fighting racial discrimination was, of course, the late Congressman John Lewis. Funeral services for the civil rights icon were held in Atlanta on Thursday, bringing former presidents Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton in to speak in person and pay tribute to Lewis's life and legacy. Let's first take a listen to President Obama, who delivered the eulogy for the late Congressman John Lewis. But today, we witness with our own eyes police officers kneeling on the necks of black Americans. George Wallace may be gone, but we can witness our federal government sending agents to use tear gas and batons against peaceful demonstrators. There are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the postal service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. Now, I know this is a celebration of John's life, There are some who might say we shouldn't dwell on such things, but that's why I'm talking about it. John Lewis devoted his time on this earth fighting the very attacks on democracy and what's best in America that we're we're seeing circulate right now. Jen, a lot of what was potent about President Obama's argument and speech was that he made the case that what John Lewis was willing to give his life for, the right to vote, is it's very much under threat today in the United States, that there are still ongoing voter suppression tactics across the country targeting black and brown voters, increasingly young voters. You've covered Congress. Whatever happened to the Voting Rights Act that John Lewis helped usher in uh, with his advocacy and activism at the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Where, where, where do things stand? You know, there's a lot of people paying tribute to John Lewis. Any sign on Capitol Hill that we could see a restoration of the Voting Rights Act? Not in this Congress. This is not something that Republicans are going to support. And it's you know, if we're talking about restoring the Voting Rights Act, that's been something they've been trying to do ever since um, the Supreme Court gutted part of it a few years back, and it just hasn't gone anywhere. And for all the tributes to John Lewis happening right now in both parties, there's there's very little chance this is going to happen right now. You have to, the only way I see it happening is if the Senate flips and, and Democrats become the majority. And that's something that, um, 
that President Obama touched on in his speech, which as a congressional reporter was interesting. He talked specifically about the Senate filibuster at, at John Lewis's eulogy, uh, which sounds kind of technical and and boring for a, a eulogy, but um, to his point, you know, John Lewis gave his life arguably for, you know, voting rights and, and fighting for equality. And the Senate filibuster is something that has prevented all kinds of, of bills from getting through with a simple majority, like, for example, restoring the Voting Rights Act, which they've now renamed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, the bill to restore it. So that is something that, that Obama talked about, which is, you know, if you really want to honor John Lewis, you should do it by getting rid of the Senate filibuster, which he called a Jim Crow relic, which that's pretty harsh language for President Obama to talk about a Senate filibuster. Um, but if, if they didn't have the Senate filibuster, you could, and Democrats retook the Senate, they could push through all kinds of things that would help to restore voting rights and protect voting rights. So it is very relevant today. And I don't see this Congress doing anything on this uh, unless the Senate flips in after November. Now, we're short on time, so I want to try and do a quick rapid fire round on what is everyone's I would say favorite or least favorite topic, um, which is a big decision that uh, President Obama's former vice president, Joe Biden, will be making next week. Uh, we are expecting a an announcement on who his running mate will be. Jason, uh, we, we play this game endlessly speculating. Uh, <laughs> Veep sticks. Veep sticks. <laughs> what, what matters at this point? Let's just ask does it even matter and why it i think it does matter because i mean vice presidents can uh can help they frequently do not uh they're they're usually just kind of there uh like see the current vice president uh but they but they can hurt and so i think the biggest thing is just don't pick somebody who can hurt you like sarah palin um and i mean because even somebody like you know lloyd benson couldn't really help Mike Dukakis that much, you know, like this sort of universally respected senator uh, back in 1988. So I, I mean, it seems like the biggest thing is like, you know, pick somebody who doesn't hurt, hurt you, who doesn't hurt the ticket, doesn't uh, embarrass you. You don't, that you don't have to think about who can campaign on her own. Uh, and, and, and is somebody who people view as like, yes, that can be the president of the United States. Matt, what is your, I, I guess, what are you watching? Uh, basically, I, I'm interested in, in, in uh, which of these will be funniest for me personally. And, and as the person on the left who has probably written the most about the Benghazi attacks of 2012, um, that would be uh, Susan Rice, the UN ambassador. I think it would be absolutely hilarious for the Republican Party amid a pandemic and an economic collapse with Trump getting blown out nationally trailing in every swing state, GOP on track to lose the Senate, to try to turn the election into a referendum on eight-year-old Sunday show interviews. That would be absolutely hilarious. Jen, any predictions or what do you think is important for Biden as he is reaching his final decision and putting all of us out of our misery? I think that, wow, I think that... Um, <laughs> I agree with with Jason that you know I think a vice presidential pick doesn't matter a whole bunch. You know, you you 
you don't want to pick someone who's going to hurt you. But I think you do have to also factor in that we are in a moment right now of a lot of change and a lot of clashing. And um, to have to have a black woman as your running mate, that is a, a huge historic, exciting moment in itself. You know, you can say what you want about Kamala Harris or God forbid he picks Susan Rice, which would be a terrible idea. And actually, I don't think that's hilarious. I think it's <laughs> insane. But that said, uh, I, I don't think you can over, you can't just lump in this vice presidential pick with the way it's been for every past president, because having a black woman on the ticket as the vice presidential candidate with a, with a, a you know, who could potentially become president in the next four years, if the current, if Joe Biden wins and passes away, you know, he's not a young man. So the, just when you look at it that way, there is an excitement to this as a nation that we have reached this point where we're having a, a, a black woman on the ticket who could become president. And that's, that's something that's not just a, a liability for the president. That's the historic moment that we shouldn't overlook. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of potential history in the making. And I think to many people, although we have had women on the ticket before, it would be, or it is at least, a very positive step for Biden to have committed to choosing a woman. Um, before we go, we do want to at least ask each one of you about a story this week that caught your attention. One of my favorite segments or parts of the show when I join as a panelist. Uh, Jason, let's start with you. Yeah, the uh, the New Yorker uh, this week, the print version at least, had this, uh, they, they did an archival issue of, um, you know, taking from their past and, and looking at people who were, you know, dissidents, uh, you know, sort of an, uh, an, an honor, you know, an homage to, to John Lewis and, and other people who have have spoken up um, at different times. And I, one of the stories that just really stuck, uh, stuck out to me uh, and it was from uh, August 1964, and it was uh, when when Calvin Trillin was a, a young man and still writing dispatches from um, different parts of the country that were not New York, and uh, and he had a letter from Jackson. He was on a plane, uh, in a, you know, not he wasn't traveling with Martin Luther King, but he was on a plane with Martin Luther King and C.T. Vivian and Andrew Young and a couple of other folks uh, from the civil rights movement, and he was he sort of witnessed this. A uh, young conservative white man who got on the plane uh, in um, in Atlanta en route to Jackson, uh, Mississippi, and, and having this kind of um, low key but little tense debate with King about uh, uh, about segregation and about the upcoming election and and about um, civil disobedience and so forth, and it's just this very um, like vivid but but um subtle at the same time if that makes sense um snapshot of where we were back then and you know because also ct vivian died just recently you know the, like the same same week as john lewis and 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 seeing you know king's words sort of come to um come up that we're not in a speech but we're in a conversation it was just this real you know kind of this thing that really kind of affected me and, and i i encourage everybody to take a look at it it's really good Thank you. It absolutely sounds fascinating. Matt, what do you got? Uh, mine, mine is, I, I think, a, a little uh, 
lighter, perhaps. Uh, I always use uh, this uh, segment to discuss my favorite media conspiracy, which is that uh, operatives from the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and are using them to bring about the revolution. Um, Sabrina, I, I won't ask uh, if you have inside information on this because I, I don't want uh, my conspiracy theory to go away. But in any case, uh, to that effect... This uh, is how the suburbs will get abolished, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming. To that effect, I, I give you the New York Times article, Turning a Second Home into a Primary Home. Those who are lucky enough to have a weekend house have discovered that living there full-time can require some adjustment, which is about rich people from New York City and the perils that they have trying to move to their uh, second uh, residences during coronavirus. And it focuses, uh, the, the lead anecdote is about uh, Sally Fisher, described as a lifelong Manhattanite who has a public relations a firm that represents entertainment, food, and fashion clients, including Jeremy Irons. Um, and she uh, and her family left their apartment in Columbus Circle and moved uh, to their weekend home in Southampton. Uh, and she is quoted in the article saying, we aren't wealthy people with a very big Hamptons home, but it's beautiful to us. This experience has rekindled our love for this house. Uh, now, uh, this article got, and, and Fisher specifically, got mocked a lot initially uh, when it started going around on Twitter with people saying that perhaps a public relations official, a public relations consultant who would say things like that wasn't very good at her job. Uh, however, it turns out that she's extremely good at her job because after people started making fun of her, that quote disappeared from the Times article uh, without any editor's note of any kind. Uh, it was a blind update where they just pulled the quote right out. So apparently she, she is quite good. Uh, and and I, I just hope that the DSA operative who was responsible for that piece uh, is still you know, well enough undercover uh, and, and will continue to, to bring us this sort of news. <laughs> Jen, you're up. Well, mine is my story of the week is I'm going to take a different turn. Uh, as a new parent, really interested in how the coronavirus is affecting kids and schools and daycares, I I was uh, struck by a story about ball pits and how ball pits are are being really the there's actually a whole industry of ball pits and if, by ball pit I mean like literally the pit of balls that kids jump into for fun. So apparently. The pandemic has been catastrophic for the ball pit industry. And <laughs> as we know, ball pits, as fun as they are, are disgusting and full of microbes and ripped off band-aids and old socks and like nastiness. So during a pandemic, of course, this is not a great place to be throwing your kids into. And so there's a whole article about what's going to happen to ball pits, like they were gross before the pandemic. So are we ever going to dive into a ball pit again? And the best part of this article, it's a really a long article, actually talking about ball pit insiders. <laughs> and the, the best part of it is this quote from a public health professor who says that he thinks it'd be pretty embarrassing for someone who contracts the coronavirus to have to admit to a contact tracer that they've been playing in a ball pit during a pandemic. So in case you're worried about your kids ever being able to play in a ball pit again, and even if you really wanted them to in the first place, this article is a nice in-depth look at what the fate of ball pits will be in this country during and after the pandemic. Well, maybe 
my story can help a little bit with this because <laughs> it has to do with a new study suggesting that dogs can sniff out the coronavirus with a striking 94% accuracy rate. Yeah. This wow. is according to a study that was led by the University of Veterinary Medicine, Hanover, and the Hanover Medical School. They set up samples from 1,000 people at random, and they ordered the dogs to pinpoint the infected ones and found that the dogs were accurate 94% of the time. So maybe the pooches are going to be part of us figuring out how we get back to some semblance of normalcy, maybe even raising the possibility of instant canine tests at sporting events and airports. And so, contact tracing. They could contact be great contact tracing. tracers. <laughs> could finally get some contact tracing uh, with a little bit of help from man and woman's best friend. I don't know why we always say man's best friend. What about us? Because um, it's the patriarchy. Exactly. So that's my story. Uh, it's because men don't have friends, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't know that's what it was. I thought it was just some weird kind of masculine notion of loyalty and all that weird stuff. But, um, you know, I, I usually try to bring an animal related story if I can. So this is my animal related story of the week. Um, really, really great to have all of you on the round table. Um, thank you so much to Jen Bendery, Matt Gertz, and Jason Dick, who will be filling in for Bill next week. So stay tuned to another edition of the Bill Press Pod. Before we go, Bill left this message about a new series of podcasts starting on Tuesday on the dangerous case of Donald Trump. That's it from me, Sabrina Siddiqui. Thank you all for listening. Next week on the Bill Press Pod, we're going to begin a special series with mental health professionals examining whether Donald Trump is mentally fit to be president of the United States. Three years ago, these leading psychologists and psychiatrists warned about Trump's mental deficiencies in the best-selling book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Now on the Bill Press Pod, three years later, they're coming back to say that after three years on the job, Donald Trump is now more dangerous than ever. The first episode of this special series on the Bill Press Pod on the dangerous case of Donald Trump airs on August 4. It'll scare the hell out of you. Don't miss it. 